Hey everyone, welcome to Techonomics this week. I'm Jake, an analyst, writer, and engineer currently working in fintech. And I'm Arun, an investor, educator, and product leader currently working in the autonomous space. Okay, so yeah, Jake, how do we want to start? How do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I mean, and today we're talking to. Yep. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been a minute. It's been a minute it since has, the Colorado episode. A, minute, a, little, <laughs> yeah. a little rusty. A little rusty. Yeah. yeah, a little rusty. A little rusty. Yeah. We're working through the uh, training wheels. Yeah. We've done this before, Taylor. I know it doesn't look like it, but <laughs> <laughs> we have. <laughs> I'm in very. It. Yeah, you're in very competent, capable hands, uh, despite all the evidence to the contrary. <laughs> and today we're talking to Taylor Clausen, the managing partner of Abstraction Capital. Taylor, welcome. Thanks, thanks. Long time, first time. Super excited to be with you guys. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Uh, I know you're an avid listener, and it's really great that we can finally get this uh, get this going, get you on. You know, um, I met Taylor uh what is it in 2020 i think it and, would have been yeah yeah it was 2020 and what were when are we talking about an early is it early 2020 before the pandemic hit or is it 2020 it was pandemic? no it was, it was pandemic it was, yeah it was pandemic yeah. and uh at the time i was thinking about taking a very different career path and that Ooh. career path was to go be a vc start a fund and do it and a, fr a common friend of ours uh, basically said, Hey, I have this person you should talk to go talk to Taylor. He's incredible. And he will teach you everything you need to know. And little did I know that even though I didn't end up going down this VC path, there were two things. First of all, Taylor taught me everything I needed to know. If I did go down this path <laughs> that I didn't really need to talk to anyone else. So that was like really, really, um, an amazing thing. And from that conversation, one thing that I, I want to point out for everybody in listening Taylor is one of the most supportive human beings of somebody trying to enter a field that he knew a little bit about, but not a lot about. There was no gatekeeping. There was no anything. Uh, he was very patient with me and trying to, uh, you know, uh, which we all know is hard for sure. Yes. We, it is. <laughs> yeah. Any, anyone who's worked with me closely knows how hard that can be. And um, good thing at that point, Taylor didn't know me that well. So he was just like, oh, maybe, you know, this person recommended him. So he can't be as stupid as he seems. <laughs> and um, he's just playing dumb to get all the info out of me, which is totally what I was doing, Taylor. Um, and so, you know, um, but yeah, and since then, I decided to go down a different path, be an entrepreneur, partially because of Taylor's guidance again. Um, I think I think he was just trying to keep me out of the field of VC, um, just to uh, keep the keep the bar high in the. No, you were uh, going to elbow the, me out of all the deals. You were going to win all of them. I had to. Right. I didn't have a choice. It was survival. Yeah, he wanted to create deals, not uh, not destroy the opportunity, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which I think you've done. Uh, so, yeah. so, and I think, um, and partially because of that, I decided to go and realize that VC, uh, at least at, at that time and right now, wouldn't have been the best thing for me. Went and started my own company. And after that, uh, Taylor, I believe you were our first institutional investor when I went down that path. And so, uh, and since then you've been very supportive, you've been very, very kind, very generous, uh, and really helped, uh, a first time founder, uh, find his legs and, and sort of, um, you know, build, build a company that otherwise wouldn't have exi existed. So that is both intro and thank you, uh, to you, Taylor. <laughs> Well, having uh, gotten to know you first, it was like one of the easiest decisions ever. I'm just thrilled that you started something in my space, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about what that space is in a second. And Taylor has another important role in my life. Taylor's my startup priest. Uh, he's the person I go, I close the confessional door, and uh, I'm able to have whatever conversation I need to have with Taylor. And I think that that is... Um, that has been that has been a wonderful thing to have and i'm sure that i'm not the only person that does that that uses you that way taylor so i know that there's nope. a lot of other nope. founders out there who would want to thank you uh for for offering that and being so great about that so yeah um you know just to start things off we always have we always ask one question to a new guest on techonomics which is how did you get to where you are i know for you this is a pretty interesting story so uh you know for, for those of you listening buckle in it's uh, yeah, I think everyone in venture in particular, like arrived at it from a different angle. So I don't know that it's that unique in that regard. It's just it's always a strange path. So I actually studied accounting in undergrad. 
And I thought that's what I wanted to do. And then the more I got into it and when I took my first tax class, I was like, oh, no, I, I don't want to be a CPA. This would be a, a terrible job. I can't do this. <laughs> so I ended up just graduating with that role. No idea what I wanted to do. And I stumbled into an analyst role at a seed fund that was affiliated with state government here in Kansas. Mm. So, you know, just economic development program that wrote venture style checks. That was my first exposure to anything like tech startup venture related. Uh, I was I was thinking in my head, why didn't we cover this part of the world at school? This is the cool part. And now there certainly are universities where they do. When I was there, Kansas State University was not one of them. I know that'll shock you. Uh, ended up being an analyst at this generalist fund for three years and completely fell in love with startups. I mean, there's just nothing like talking to passionate founders. I didn't love the government and political part of that job. I don't, I think that requires mm -hmm. a disposition that I lack. So after three years there, I left and joined a, a clean tech startup. So this company made retrofitable led hardware products for outdoor lighting. Uh, we scaled that to a few million in sales. Ooh, hardware's tough. And this was right mm -hmm. after the global financial hardware's crisis. Hard. Yeah, hardware's hard for a reason. The working capital yeah. dynamics of that business are just so different from software. And right after the global financial crisis, credit didn't exist. Equity is not the right instrument for financing inventory. So we ended up selling the company in 2012. Not a life-changing outcome, but it was a really great experience. I wanted to get back into venture and stay in KC. Those Venn diagrams do not overlap <laughs> extensively. It's gotten a lot talk better. talk about that too. Yeah, we can definitely get into that. It's gotten a lot better since 2012. I mean, there's a, there's a really nice layer of pre-seed and seed and even some Series A funds here now. Um, but I ended up joining a group uh, that you'd probably best describe as a multifamily office and doing venture for them for seven years and some change. And when I joined that group in 2012, I'm just thinking, looking at the composition of my day, everything I do is in software now. I don't know anything about software. I can read a pitch deck, I can go through financial statements, but I, I have no idea what's going on under the hood. And so I started teaching myself how to code nights and weekends. And like that, that over the years went from like tinkering to building small hobby projects to eventually helping portfolio companies in really lightweight ways. I just completely fell in love with developer facing stuff. I was like, oh, th this is the fun part of the world. Mm -hmm. This is what, you know, like I could just geek out on it and, and I have fun talking to these founders. I vibe with them. It was just a good time. And so this became a drumbeat in my head that I wanted to be investing in this space. So I started abstraction. I'm on, I'm on fund one now. Started at the beginning of 2020, and uh, here we are. So it's a $13 million pre-seed and seed fund focused on all things developer-facing. Dev tools, DevOps, infrastructure, a little bit of low-code automation if it's still targeted at a technical user. Very cool. And so one thing, uh, I've always had this question, which is, what do, you, what do you think the state of developer tools are? Because I've always had this stake that I still think developer tools are really hard to use in a lot of cases. And don't and accommodate. And there's too too many to even like know what yes. to, to bite yes. off at the time, right? And it, it changes very quickly. You know, every time a new infrastructure paradigm comes online or a new framework comes online, you now have another choice, right? It's like that XKCD where there's a new standard mm -hmm. for, you know, all the standards, right? And so I think um, th there's, like, I joked with one of my investors that like, we've actually been solving like the same five or six problems in computer science going back to like the 50s and 60s. It's just, we do it at a different layer of abstraction now. And every mm -hmm. time you move up a layer, you have new choices to make. And so like, you know, maybe maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you're thinking, OK, well, if I'm going to do yeah, I just need a simple, you know, blog. OK, well, WordPress is the obvious choice. And now what's the obvious choice? I mean, is it is it, a, you know, a headless CMS? Is it something full featured where do you deploy it? You know, OK, well, maybe you should use a front end framework to help with this. Great. Now you only have 200 choices to make about which one. So <laughs> it's just a very fun you know, way to kind of dig into that. So I would say that they're, they, I, Arun, your point is salient. They're, they are difficult to use because they're changing so quickly. But I think you know, every time something new comes online, new things can be built, new paradigms can happen, and I get excited about that. Yeah, and uh, but, and the other thing too is, so you got in developer tools because you sort of like, I guess, became a developer yourself, saw that there was a problem space, and kind of uh, decided to, I don't know, uh, that this was the niche. What was kind of like the aha moment for that, if there was a single moment? Um, it was right before uh, Vercel rebranded as Vercel. Um, what were they? What were they called before that? I'm blanking on it. Um, but anyway, you know, Next was out, and I got so excited about what Vercel was doing, and I was trying to describe it to one of my friends, who's also in venture, who's just a generalist B two B fund. Like, in, he's an incredible investor, but like, he's like. I just don't understand why this is exciting. And I'm like pounding the table. I'm like, no, you should be so excited about this. And it, it just became one of those things where I realized like at least, you know, in, in 
in a lot of circles, these tools are not very well understood. The go-to-market motions are slightly different. Uh, the founders are slightly different. Like I don't have any Harvard or Stanford MBAs in my portfolio. They're all engineers, right? Yeah. And sometimes engineers are hard to talk to if you're a business person. And so um, there are amazing funds that that focus exclusively on this space, like the Amplifies and Bold Starts of the world. But frankly, I think the space is so big and important that we should have 200 funds that focus on it. And instead, there's like five or 10 in the world. How do you think about like some of these companies that you're investing in the fact that there is so many opportunities to to invest and you know we we you know what are some examples of companies that have been in this space that to your point have, have succeeded and like become kind of that like uh name stay uh, if you will yeah. in the industry and like how do you try to identify those that could grow into that oh man it's so hard uh i think one of the one of the difficult things particularly at pre-seed and seed in this space is that this is a most developer facing things are categories where it's really easy to create user value and kind of notoriously difficult to extract user value. So, you know, there's a few things I like to look for that are, they're hard to tease out, frankly. And like, I'm sure I'll end up getting as many right as I get wrong. Um, the founder has to be just incredibly passionate. Like there aren't any mercenary founders mm -hmm. in the space. Jake, if you start a company in the space, it's going to be because of a problem you encountered that drove you nuts. Same with you, Arun, right? Like this, it wasn't yeah. just that you thought, oh, well, I saw this on a gardener quadrant and I should build something in this space. No, that's not how, that's not how you guys work. Um, I, I think so the, the founder passion is one. I think the next is, do I believe there's a willingness to pay at some point? And that one's really mm -hmm. hard. Like, honestly, at, at the stages I invest, a lot of that is just kind of just coming to conviction that is probably not very scientific. You know, I'll talk to as many yeah. people as I can. I'll talk to as many large companies as I can. But at the end of the day, like that, that is something you end up taking on faith. The other one is like, I, I like to see a company riding a wave much bigger. Right. So like, you know, yeah. if you're if you're tackling a complicated problem, well, that's necessary, but not sufficient to produce a big right. outcome. You also have to be riding a wave that the world is ready for. So, you know, like I think about things like, <laughs> I, has AI been in the news? Have you guys heard anything about that? Like, you know, we've been talking about that? ML for years. Yeah, exactly. We've been <laughs> talking about ML for years. And even today, like you look at, you throw a rock at the nearest Fortune 500 company and they are light years away from being able to adopt and deploy that. So I think that one, you know, like you have to believe that the wave is cresting in the in the not too distant future or else, you know, you're kind of stranded. Yeah. Time and a place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So that brings us to a point where you kind of have the aha moment, you have that thing, and then ultimately you have to go and raise your first fund. And what was that <laughs> like? <laughs> uh, it was difficult. It was difficult. And, you know, it's there, there's a few things with that. Number one, I'm a, I'm a one man band. It's a tiny fund, first time fund, solo GP, like, you know, emerging mm -hmm. managers are a difficult category for a lot of institutional LPs. And that the fund size I was raising many people who do have an appetite for the asset class just can't write a small enough check. It would be like you going to try and raise a seed round from Goldman Sachs. Like they'd say, great, call us back when you're raising 500 million. You know, they, they can't cover that even if they like you. Yeah. So I would say the most difficult problem was just finding, like if you view it as a sales process, it's sort of finding and qualifying leads. And I would not say I'm great at that. Like it took me a long time to sort of get a process down for that. And it it took every bit of 24 months to get to final close. There was also a global pandemic that happened in that time period, which maybe you know, slowed things down a little bit. Like my my <laughs> LP pipeline went to zero when when lockdown hit, and it took a while mm. to build back from that. But the you know the flip side of that is once sort of you know we all realized the world wasn't ending and the Fed started injecting a lot of liquidity into the market, it was actually a great time to be raising because every asset class is up and to the right. Everyone wants startups on their balance sheet, yeah. and so it, it you know there's trade offs associated with that. You know a lot of funds like mine, we end up with uh, fam family offices and high net worths, and you know maybe some funds of funds that have an appetite for emerging managers and small funds. But it's it's a it's a difficult cohort of investors to find and then even more difficult to qualify like if, if you think it raising yeah. money from vcs is opaque try raising from their investors it's it's really difficult yeah how, how has that shifted in the last like six months or so right i mean we had the injection of liquidity in the market of course and then that has changed frequently when did the round close i guess or fund close and like how has that yeah. been for for the past six months my final close was December of 21. So I actually mm. can't answer your question firsthand. I'm not I'm not uh, raising right now. I 
judging from canvassing other emerging managers, it's tough right now. People are looking for uh, a lot of kind of proof points that are difficult to do when you're talking about an asset class that is very long in duration and is going to have indeterminate interim measures until everything is, you know, the dust settles on everything. I do think there's also been some recognition that small funds are generally a good asset class to have. And you're seeing a lot of institutional grade investors figure out vehicles where they can deploy into smaller funds, just because frankly, Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you're investing out of a billion dollar fund, the hurdle for getting to a three X net fund, which is generally going to be considered top quartile in most vintages, it's very difficult. And if you're investing out of a $5 million fund, well, if you have, you know, $1 billion outcome in an entire portfolio, you can make the math work much more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. How much of the institutional investors looking at seed stage funds is because of the bubble in late stage that occurred in, uh, in, in 2020 and 2021? It's a fascinating question. I, I actually don't know. Um, and most institutional allocators that cover this space, you know, from a variety of stages, they're, they're very sophisticated about how they think about this. I will say, uh, to the extent they are adding new managers to their stable, it's easier to write a small check than it is a large check. If you have a a program already built and then you, you sometimes hear about things like the numerator and denominator effect for LPs. So if they only want a certain percentage of their assets under management deployed into a particular stage sector, strategy, asset class, well, you know, public markets may be corrected down to a more stable valuation. Privates take much longer to sort of mm-hmm. you be marked at something that, that exactly. So I think there's it, there's it's a pretty complicated problem, and the the time lag in between you know a liquid public market and your private assets is it can be very significant. Don't I know it? Given the distribution of my net worth. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and. So it was difficult raising your first fund. And then ultimately you have to go and you have to kind of start deploying. I mean, you started raising in 2020, 2021. So maybe, you know, dynamics are different. You have to start deploying kind of around that time too. And, you know, you kind of have this, this interesting perspective, which is that your fund actually started kind of around in the pandemic and all of that, you know, Looking back on all that, what are the biggest lessons for founders, for investors, and what are the biggest lessons you learned yourself? Yeah, I, I would say I got fortunate in a, in one thing, which was I have always favored a relatively long deployment period. Um, over the past decade, it's become sort of in vogue for small funds to deploy very, very quickly, 12 to 18 months versus historically most early stage funds would deploy over three plus years. And I always liked the idea of having some time diversity in the portfolio and plan for a longer deployment period anyway. I got very lucky with that because 2020 and 2021, I think are still you know, going to end up being good vintage years, but valuations were high. And I think like particularly when you're doing early stage investing, to the extent you can control it, ownership targets matter a lot. And so I would say that it, it, you guys mentioned growth stage earlier. Well, growth, if you're underwriting to a public comp and the public market shifts on you, you're upside down very, very quickly. And if you have sort of any sensibility at an early stage around valuations and you're underwriting to a much larger multiple further down the road, you sort of have time in your column as an asset. So I would say that I feel lucky to be relatively insulated from some of the you know wackiness that has gone on in the market. The other thing is just sort of the, the profile of founders I chase. Like candidly, I, I don't end up uh, doing a lot of deals that are part of a hype cycle where, you know, four mm-hmm. or five companies in one category will all launch in a month and raise from tier one funds and have eight term sheets and, you know, just get priced to the moon. That's not really the style of investing I do. So um, I, I tend to find founders that are a little bit more off the beaten path. I don't really have any geographic targets or focus. And that I think sometimes plays to my advantage. Do a lot of funds have the geographic targets? I mean, if you're not an economic development fund. Same. Uh, yeah, has that kind of broken down in 2020, uh, 20 and 2021? You'd be surprised. Um, I, yes. So like there's a million different ways you can slice up a thesis. You can have heavy geographic restrictions, sort of informal ones or loose ones, or you can sort of have de facto ones. So like there's a lot of amazing funds in the Bay Area that would say they'll invest anywhere, but 90% of their seed portfolio is in the Bay Area. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's where their network is strongest. There's an incredible density of talent. Um, but I also think, you know, depending on the space you're in, branching out a little bit can be 
in your favor. So for example, like I invest in developers. Well, developers are the OG online community dating back to the pre-commercial internet days. It doesn't really matter if you're in you know, Dublin or India or here or South America, you, you can still build a product and get people using it online. It's where they hang out, it's where they talk, it's where they kick around ideas. So I think particularly in my thesis space, it probably matters less. And there are certainly other thesis, you know, uh, thesis, thesis, thesis focuses, focus, foci. I don't, yeah, uh, other, <laughs> other investors who, you know, do need sort of, sort of more of a de facto geographic concentration. Do you find uh, like the geographic concentration is, is a little bit more like regional. Like I'm always curious about like, mm -hmm. we're all from a version of the, of the Midwest, uh, yeah. in some way, shape or form. Um, Wait, did you just admit Buffalo is the Midwest? Because before you cast me out of the Midwest. Not, no, it's I, not, I said, I said oh. by way, shape, or form. That was my my asterisk <laughs> qualifier to keep Buffalo out, but that's okay. Um, okay, okay. For, fine. For all of us that have grown up in the cold, right? Uh, there tends to be like a lack of, I think, mm -hmm. like large concentration of capital in those markets. And therefore, like, you know, maybe a lower talent density because everyone's moving to the coast or to like some, some higher, uh, to, to the markets that you mentioned previously. So how does that work out for your fund and like what's going on with Midwest startups? It's interesting. So I, I can speak to a little bit of Kansas city and maybe the Midwest region in general, but I would, I would caveat it with, I'm not an expert on that. I think in the case of Kansas city, it's very different than it was 10 or 15 years ago when I started investing here. So it, it's gotten a lot better. And I think you you keyed in on talent density being being one of the most important things. Right. I actually think if you solve the talent density problem, capital allocation is a is an inefficient process, but it's efficient enough to find successful companies, right? So yeah. there are there are deals in Kansas City that have been done by name brand coastal investors once they get to a series B or beyond. I think it's those early stages that are sort of the harder piece to to solve. I also think and, and a lot of people blame this on sort of risk averse culture. And I'm I'm 50 50 on that. I don't know whether that exists or to what degree it influences this. I do think what people need to see is a like a peer group. You have to know it can be done here. So like people who are willing to blaze that trail and, and get things done can actually do a lot. And then in any particular ecosystem, like if you look at sort of, a you know, a tier two, tier three city, that's not one of the you know, really hyped cities for startups. Something that likely happened that really pushed them to the next level was in a five-ish year period, they had multiple billion dollar outcomes in the area. Mm -hmm. So like you look at a Salt Lake or even like an Indianapolis, yeah. you have billion dollar plus outcomes where local investors on the cap table get liquidity and they have traditional venture backed employee stock option pools. And the ripple effect out from a few wins like that in a short period of time, I think Big. really just yeah, it can't be overstated. Yeah, because it, it just yeah. it creates liquidity for people who are willing to invest in this asset class. And it also gives them the freedom because they have the financial independence or close enough to it that they feel like they can de-risk the the role of a founder. They they can go start their own thing. So I think when you when you get that, it really creates an inflection point. And if you look back, like, you know, Jake, I know you're in San Francisco. If you look back to like the yeah. original Silicon Valley startups, like what happened was there was this amazing just density of a yeah. short period of time where all of these incredible companies started and the ripple effect out was immense. And those those employees went on to start new companies. I mean, this is why you get like the, the tree of fair children or the PayPal mafia. Like it just yeah. it creates a culture when that happens. Yeah, I think uh, just just personally, I think I've seen that with a lot of my Uber colleagues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They they've gone on and like I feel like uh, every day I hear about uh, one of my ex colleagues basically starting a new company or or you know um, and it's kind of crazy uh, to think like how many founders came out of a very you know tight circle of people. Um, and I think that that's that's super cool, and I think you're you're very right about about that. One question too that just popped into my head, which is like geographical location too, and like kind of this like positive flywheel that happens with these companies in certain regions kind of ballooning. Are you seeing that as like a growth of the pie or are you seeing that as like a kind of zero sum game or maybe somewhere in between in terms of like talent density and like where you'll start to find it? Because one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is like COVID caused a lot of people to just like move randomly to like whatever yeah. geographic location worked best for them in their life. And like, that's great. But like, are those the founders that are moving or are those like yeah. just the folks that have a, a pretty like easy cush incumbent job at like a, a larger company that'll help support that, that lifestyle? I think it's probably both. You know, I, I can think of, of just anecdata in, in, in either case. I would tend to think 
that it grows the pie rather than is zero sum. But that's probably just me being an optimist. I mean, there are certainly examples where it probably would be zero sum. And, you know, a team that was in a high cost of living, but very talent dense environment decided to move somewhere else because someone grew up there. It was low cost of living or is convenient or, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. But I also think like, you know, once you get sort of a, a base set of whether it's early stage startup community or investors or anything else, then all of a sudden things like that become more palatable and we just get more shots on goal as, as humanity at things that can change the world. So I I would, I would say I would lean growing the pie. Yeah. I mean, I I think so too. I I, I lean that way as well. It's good to hear your perspective on it. Also, it's good to hear that like you're investing kind of without those geographical constraints. And I also like, we've had a couple of investors that we've been talking to a bunch about like, you know, fully dedicated funds in the Midwest and and how they're really devoted to like geographical um, improvement yeah. of, of like their own own region. So good to see some of those companies and, and funds starting to sprout up. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Cool. Okay. So wh- one thing that you did talk about or mention previously was like this uh, kind of like, you know, AI space of like, <laughs> you know, getting into this world of like, oh, what is AI? It's everywhere. But, you know, we're investing yeah. in your fund invest and and maybe a different way of, of really looking at the value that's presented and like kind of meeting a time into place and, and meeting these, you know, and, and customers essentially about where they are and, and finding companies that do that while edging towards the future. Um, right. If I were to paraphrase, how does that fit within like this LLM boom and how some of the, you know, doom and gloom, I guess, articles that have come out around, you know, LLM will change the way the developer, that development works. Like, run for the fences, like, you know, your jobs are in jeopardy and so on. <laughs> right. how, how do you see that uh, in terms of like your dev space, but then also just in yeah. general? I, I, it's a fascinating question. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and, and talking with friends and investors. I I don't know is the short answer. I, I tend to think that like the doom and gloom is a little bit alarmist and I'm just not a very alarmist person in general. To me, this is like, well, if your job is cutting trees down for a living and someone gives you a chainsaw instead of an ax, what happens? Are you out of a job? Well, no, you just cut down more trees. You know, I should probably think up a more climate friendly example, but you know, you, you get my point. So like I, I'm <laughs> of the mind that like, Software is the thing that will grow GDP in the world yeah. over the next coming decades. And so there's already a, a talent shortage of developers. They're a really important asset any company has. If we can make those developers more productive, is this bad? No, this is great. This is amazing. Like we need more of this. If we if we flatten the learning curve a little bit on new technology, like that's a win for everyone. I think it's it's always the the devil's always in the details right and so when i think about like one of the ways that you know the phrasing i've always liked to characterize my thesis that i'm stealing from somewhere else is like picks and shovels in a gold rush right so pick your new technology maybe maybe it was you know cloud a couple years back or mobile and now maybe it's ai or you know it'll be something else in a year or two great okay well how do we actually you know build the plumbing to make that accessible Mm -hmm. and digestible to other people i also get um, a little hot and bothered when everyone's saying that, you know, AI is is coming for a developer's job. There's a reason we call computer science an engineering discipline, and it's because being provably correct and deterministic really matters. And LLMs are fundamentally not that. They're probabilistic. And so I get excited. Like, I have a lot of companies in my portfolio that they've either built a compiler or something that resembles it, right? It's doing validation. It's doing type checking. It's provably correct and deterministic. If I'm driving over a bridge... I don't want mm-hmm. it to be probabilistically correct. I want the math to check out, right? And so I think the same thing applies to software, particularly in critical infrastructure, where if you compare the, the ease of use of an LLM with something that does basic, you know, deterministic functions, that's really powerful. And I get really excited about that. Yeah, I see it as like a, for, a force multiplier of yeah. the engineers that are already in market. I mean, even, you know, I, I'm an I'm an engineering uh, leader these days, not not yeah. so much uh you know near to the near to the metal, but um, even for for us, like I mean, leveraging it for prompt engineering for emails or, or prompt engineering for you know the perf reviews, the performance reviews, like right. things like that is like okay, cool, that's making me more efficient and able able to really like you know increase my impact overall. And I think engineering will will be the same. Of course, there will be some. Yeah. roles and positions that are going to be more adversely affected than others but i do think in the long term like I, th- I think you're right that with the right training with the right tools with the right like leverage of that technology over time like we'll only see positive net effects that's my hope that's my hope i would agree with that and what about uh like 
I was just talking about ChatGPT for a second and like <laughs> just in general, like the technology, like have you been using it at all? Uh, you know, what have you used it for? Have you seen other portfolio companies using it in interesting ways? Just as a technologist, I love tinker tinkering with it and, you know, any of the generative stuff. Like it's really fun to play with. I, uh, I almost, maybe not every, but most of my portfolio company, companies have been implementing uh, functions like that to make their products easier to use. Like Arun, you mentioned earlier, like some of these developer-facing products can be very cumbersome to use and have a steep learning curve and navigating the documentation is tricky. Well, what what would be good at that? <laughs> LLMs, right? And so I think like things like that, almost everyone is implementing functions like that. Now, I'm also not someone who thinks any company that is you know, just having an API call to GPT should uh, call themselves an AI company. I think this is something like mobile or cloud a, a while back. Like, no, this just having this embedded in your product becomes table stakes over time. It doesn't make you a cloud company per se or an AI company per se. So I would say I'm, I'm very bullish on that. As far as tinkering with it, like, like I said, I'm a one man band. So time management is always top of mind for me. And it's something I feel like I have to change and tweak every day. And Anything that can help me spend more time on the valuable parts of my job that actually have compounding returns, I'm in. Like, let's go. <laughs> cool. Makes sense to me. What do you think about the infra layer? Asking for a friend. <laughs> um, it's complicated. I mean, I think there's so there's a, a lot of lingering questions. Like, so for example, um, you guys probably saw, you know, a month or two ago, eh, like four or five different vector database companies raised a, a lot of venture money. I think that's fascinating. Should that be a new layer of infra or is that something that's just subsumed into Postgres over time? Like I have no idea, you know, so I think it's it's tricky in the early innings while like the, the galaxy is still forming to figure out which layers of that value chain will have discrete layer. I tend to think that particularly stuff that touches the real world or other job functions will have discrete value. So, you know, Arun, I think you could tell your friend that that what this person is doing maybe has some some unique value propositions that some other pieces don't have. But I, I think it's also one of those where you have to think about enterprise willingness to adopt. And like I've, I've done stuff in ML ops and ML infra before out of this fund. And one of the difficult things about this space for me is that you can get people using it for free. Enterprises have historically not really been ready to pay for it. And figuring out why and when that will change is very tricky. And so you have to sort of believe that wave is cresting and, and, and figure out where and why and kind of what they're ready for. In, in, your, in your experience, right, like what, what tools have, have been successful at all in that space? Or are you basically saying that like, yeah, enterprise just right now is not ready to adopt these things at scale at, at, at price? Yeah, I think they're kind of lagging behind, I would say, which is not surprising. They're they're much larger yeah, larger organizations. Yeah. yeah. I, I, but you know, like so I think about like just maybe not AI per se, but like more ML stuff a couple of years ago and like probably the biggest success case was Data Robot. Is Data Robot yeah. really ML? Like, yeah, sure, just nowhere near cutting edge, right? And so I think that kind of figuring out that time lag and and I think the other thing is that um there's I'm going to have to think about how to say this. There's a lot of stuff in the infra space whose sole value prop is we save you time. And mm -hmm. I would characterize that as necessary, but not sufficient in a lot of cases. I think mm -hmm. you have to tie to a business outcome. You either have to be able to show lift in revenue or reduction in cost or both uh, to kind of garner that enterprise spend. And, you know, getting those first dominoes to fall is very tricky. Like, I think every startup goes through a different path to get there. So... You know, wh where are you excited outside of LLMs right now, Taylor? Yeah, um, I think one of the things I've been spending a lot of time thinking about over the past maybe nine to 12 months um, that I, I briefly touched on before is, is connecting software development to other functions within the business. Maybe that's finance, maybe it's accounting, maybe it's ops, maybe it's something else. But I think um, developers have superpowers, right? And software is subsuming other parts of the business but it remains very siloed in, you know, maybe non-tier one tech companies. Like there are very few Fortune 500 companies that are truly engineering-driven organizations. And I would say that where we can connect up, you know, just the everyday business person with a software development process, I think magic can happen. And there's usually an easy way to tie it into a business case that can result in revenue. So it's almost like the there's still a transformation that needs to go on in a lot of businesses. Uh, I think like, uh, somebody always says this, there's always like a, 
I don't know, they use the term legacy business. I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> it's a business that's around today. I don't know why you call it a legacy business, right? Yeah. It's employing people today. It's making money today, but maybe isn't technology forward. And there's a bunch, yeah. there's a class of companies that still need to be revolutionized. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even for ones that have like, you know, broadly speaking, benchmarked against the rest of the world, you know, well-defined software adoption, actually getting them to be engineering driven, which I think is the future is difficult. Like that takes a long time to get there. Yeah, it puts it's well, there's got to be an inversion of power. And a lot of times that what that starts with a founder who is an engineer and or right. like uh, the company willing to to cede control to to someone who has an, an engineering background in a lot of cases, right? Um, Absolutely. Which, my goodness. It, uh, it's scary. You know, the, it's scary. The latter yeah. is tougher than the, than the former. <laughs> yes. <laughs> cool. Um, so in terms of, you know, we talked about the middle of the countries and the coasts. Uh, one thing I always hear is that you'll always see somebody in a market and they'll always claim that their market is undercapitalized. And I think you mm -hmm. said this earlier, like markets are efficient enough that they will find good town. This is what I've told people is that, especially in the post pandemic world, this argument doesn't hold as much water with me. Yeah. Uh, I think that if you're a great company, there's a VC out there willing to listen. Yeah. Um, now there are some cases where this is not true. And there, and the, these breakdowns are sometimes people just do not have a network. Sometimes people, uh, you know, they are from like one of the, uh, the older businesses and don't have like, maybe like the tech connections they need to sort of get their idea off the ground. It does invert in certain places, but on the whole, I, I have generally said that there are not undercapitalized markets. There are under maybe under talented markets or under, um, you know, I'm sure there's another word for this, actually, that's probably better. That won't get me a bunch of hate mail. Um, but, you know, I would just say that, like, there's there's undercompanied markets, right, in terms of quality, mm. in terms of number, in terms of things. But I don't know if there's if there's an undercapitalized uh, market in today's world. I don't know. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Obviously, we're kind of uh, we're kind of coming at it from different angles. But I, I would broadly agree with you. I think I'm of the mindset that if you're, you, you could be in a town of 2000 people, if you build a really high quality company, you can figure out how to raise money. Now, I will also say that it would be very important to, you know, Arun, you mentioned people not having a network. It's also hard to decouple that from sort of existing prejudice and bias in the industry. Oh, right? yeah, totally. Like, yeah, historically, the, the percentage of dollars that have gone to diverse or female founders is just frankly horrifying and embarrassing. And so I don't, I don't, I, I would be reluctant to call that a network problem. So I think that's one of those where I believe the the trend line is hopefully in the right direction in terms of like you can be in a quote unquote undercapitalized geography and still find high quality investors. But I also think there's there can be like a, a lack of sort of awareness around what a good fundraise should look like. And especially like a few years ago, like in the Midwest, you know, you would get local angels or even some local funds and they would frankly give such an ugly term sheet with off market oh, terms God. that even even if you raised money from them and the company was doing well your, your cap table would have to be completely reset at the next round and a lot of I, funds just don't want to deal with that yeah don't don't even get me started on this uh <laughs> this is this is one of the things that like it is so bad uh that there is basically a class of investors in the midwest that really uh, to, i think take advantage of less sophisticated founders uh, yeah. And if you don't have, you know, this and this is where I use the term network loosely. I think network for me when I say it is like a term of like awareness, you know, yeah. peer uh, groups, the, the right right the attorneys, mm -hmm. the, yeah, all and, of the above, and, yeah. and, and some of that, and, and some of that maybe maybe not all of that does encompass gender and and race issues as well. But I feel like you have people, you have a class of people who basically will uh, think that risk management is screwing the founder. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And it, it is it is really gone on my nose because as raising in raising around here uh, in the mid midish west I don't know what you want to call it uh, call it midish west I'll give you I'll give you that yeah R Rust Belt here 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 in Middle West <laughs> like Middle Earth um, Middle Earth yeah when I when I had a fellowship of the fundraise going on <laughs> oh uh, the uh, let's play on this one. Yeah. And so the uh, what basically happens is, you know, there there's always somebody there. There were two things that came up. There would always be somebody being like, oh, yeah, I'd love to get in. But here are some horrible terms. That's and right. and if I didn't know better, like it probably seemed like a good deal. The second thing was there was always somebody willing to take an advisory role. 
Yes. For for like you know and like basically I, I still remember this to this day. I remember I called you about this, Taylor. I had somebody say, "Well, hey, I can introduce you to all these people. All I want is X percent." Yeah. And really, the 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 thing I had to say is, uh, you know, I have never like anytime somebody comes to me if it's a worthy company, worthy founder, and they need an intro, I've always just given the intro. That's it's right. thirty seconds of work to write the email. Uh, and I was never going to give up uh, X percent of whatever for for essentially like you know uh, what what is it i mean let's say you made 10 intros i mean three minutes of time right like uh it was it was never going to happen but you know look if you're if you if you don't have access right okay. somebody some i mean that's where you know markets are efficient but not always in that direction i agree um, i agree and and it is like fun then nothing about an early stage fundraise is an efficient process in the short mm -hmm. term i just think like the the question is time horizon there. And I think if you build a, a high quality company over time, things will work out. It's just you may not get to that point if you if you're hamstrung along the way. For sure. Um, and I think uh, I think there's 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 a lot here. I I, I don't know. Uh, we can't cover it all, obviously. But, <laughs> you know, I think that the, the dynamics are changing in the middle of the country, I think, yeah. for the better. But I still think that there's a lot of education that needs to go on for for founders. Mm -hmm. And I also think like when you when when founders sort of like have like little networks uh, of each other and like, you know, you know, a couple people in that peer group have done it correctly. That's right. It makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. So, you know, the the one thing I would say, if you're a founder out there, the one of the best things you can do and you've done it, you've done a founder, you've done a fundraise, right? Or maybe you're, you've become, you've grown a late stage company. Even if you, you know, you, you, you don't, you don't have a lot of time to give somebody else in order to help mentor them or whatever, at least if you can help them navigate their fundraise correctly, uh, which, which shouldn't take like a lot of time, honestly, uh, right. you know, you're able to give them advice here and there. That's probably one of the best things you can do, uh, for somebody else. So, uh, for anybody in there who's either done it, has exited, has whatever, go find a founder, go help them out, uh, and specifically try to find one that wouldn't normally have, hmm uh access to 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 that kind of that kind of wisdom and really um you know do your best to make sure that they they get a fair deal in all of this i think that's the right advice and i mean like i i don't think i would have been able to raise a fund if i didn't have a peer group of emerging managers to lean on and so like i i'll try and have any conversation i can with someone who wants to start a fund just to be like hey this worked for me this didn't work for me here's what to watch out for I think those peer groups are really important and it's hard to it's hard to synthetically recreate that if you didn't just naturally come out of a network like that. Yeah. And I also think this like for for fund managers such as yourself, I mean, I know you spent a lot of time with me when my when my first cap table was coming together and sort of saying, OK, yeah, th this this looks about right. OK, this seems like this. This is, hey, try this. OK, and see if you can get this, because the other thing is you can get a bunch of really great term sheets. The other hard part is trying to trying to get a, a round together i tell people it's like trying mm -hmm. to solve a puzzle but the puzzle's moving until the last <laughs> until you until you snap <laughs> the last piece that's, in right that's right <laughs> and so you know i think that you know uh if if you're an experienced investor and you've seen these kinds of deals um you know it's a little it's a little bit harder because you can never as founder you know it was different between you and me we kind of we were friends first and and kind of met through other things and then eventually yeah. kind of uh ended up in this relationship uh but in terms of you know sometimes you, you don't know if you can trust your one of the investors on your cap table or not right that's right um and so you know that's why i think like founder to founder is always more powerful but you know for those of you somebody you think somebody you trust uh having them like sort of at least look at the deal as it's coming together i think is also mm -hmm. really really helpful and i know taylor you were that i know i had some other founders that were really helpful and Look, let's face it. I had really great investors, um, you know, in terms of in terms of a round coming together and, and whatever. I, I've really had zero problems. Um, you know, it, it could have been it could have been a lot worse uh, in our case. And so I think uh, I think definitely you were a part of that. But I'd say, like, I'm sure that there are other great fund managers. I think these VCs don't get talked about enough. It's always the people like tweeting out at DSC. It's always the people triggering a run on a bank. It's always the people that are, you know, uh, have never actually built a company, but will tell you what to do. It's the same people who are on the boards governing companies that then write the idiotic memo in 2022 about how companies should be run. And then it's those people you hear about, right? But you never hear about the people like yourself who have done it correctly and really, really um, 
you know, helped a lot of founders and done it, done it really the right way. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, I think particularly at the early stages, the, the best thing any, any investor can do is try to create alignment between him or herself and the founders. And I think, yeah, yeah Arun, I know you're a cap table and I think you have tremendous investors and they do a really yeah. good job of sort of just mm-hmm. pushing for alignment and, and recognizing when there's misalignment and sort of voicing the, the why behind that. I feel like there's an opportunity here. Uh, how should folks reach out to you both? Because uh, it sounds to me like if we have some founders listening, uh, <laughs> they may have some folks willing to help. Absolutely. There's there's an email address on my website, abstraction.vc. My DMs are open on Twitter, X, or whatever we have to call that now. Dear God. Uh, and uh, <laughs> just find me X. anywhere. I'm not X? hard to find. X, that... I guess. I guess. Oh, what a time yeah. to be alive. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Bye-bye, birdie, I guess. Ugh. Yeah, I think uh, for, if somebody wanted to, my, my I think my Twitter DMs are also open. Uh, so Twitter's always a thing. LinkedIn, those are the two places I tend to look. So, um, you know, I hit me up uh, and I'll help if I can. Definitely. So, Taylor, uh, as we kind of uh, we kind of close out, and I feel like we only scratched the surface here, so you have to come back. We, I didn't even get to. <laughs> rip on you we for being a chiefs fan oh. i'm sorry though did you say the what th- i think you meant the world <laughs> champion kansas city chiefs is that what you meant yeah i i mean that th- that is a label that has been affixed to them by some i uh i i, I agree um i mean i don't know about world nobody else plays football so i was literally i was just gonna make that, that yeah so like yeah, so i mean like it seems way of seems it. yeah it seems seems a little Seems a little suspect, uh-huh. yeah. uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't get to razz you for that. I didn't get to. I didn't. We didn't get to talk about that incredible Bills Chiefs game in 2022. Best game. That uh, was, there's nothing like it. Yeah, there, there was there was nothing like that game. I can honestly say that as somebody who was there, and uh, you know, it's one of those things. I should have been crying. But the <laughs> only thing I remember just. I think I may have called you when I was walking out of the stadium, and I was just like, "What did I just watch?" Like it was, it was just awe inspiring. I, I didn't get the result I wanted, but it, that didn't seem to like deter from my enjoyment of what I had seen. I remember uh, texting you and uh, one of our other friends, who's a Bill fan, Bills fan, right at the end of regulation, just saying like, honestly, whoever wins the coin toss in overtime, this is the greatest football game I've ever seen. Like both of <laughs> yeah. these teams deserve to win. <laughs> yeah, and and it's also really funny. I actually recently saw the game. Like I never actually like I was there. But I never actually like watched it on like you know on TV or YouTube. Not even highlights. Say about the time you were having during that game. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. As in, like, I've never, I've never like watched it on TV. Right, right, right. So like strategy, the the viewpoints, the right. I never got like the commentary and like all the other things that were going on, right? Because uh, I, you know, I I couldn't. I actually was too stressful to watch again. Yeah. And so um, basically, like, uh, I really remember rewatching it. And like, it's really funny. I thought watching it would change my emotions about it. Like I'd feel angry or something like that afterwards. I didn't. It was just like, that was amazing. I can't believe I was there. This is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, uh, I mean, I wish it had gone a different way, but whatever. Like, uh, you know, the fact that I could say I was there and I got to see, uh, you know, two teams that were incredible Mm -hmm. just duking it out was was pretty awesome. So, um, you know, uh, you'll have to come back and and educate us some more on on a variety of topics, including why the the, the term world champion should be affixed to a a national sport. Maybe we have Um, the name for this episode. Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. World champion Taylor. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever gotten that one before. (laughs) Well, nice to meet you, Taylor. Yeah, Yeah, you as well. This was great. great Wait, 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 Jake. We we have to give give him a hot take. Okay, we're fine. Oh, I want to hear it. Let's do the hot take. Yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. Uh, yeah. I think we already kind of did give him one. Do you want to give him one, or do you want me to give him one? Because uh, I'll, I'll, I'll. Uh, I have an I'll idea. I'll give him. All right, I'll tee you I up. I will give him. I'll tee you up. I'll give him. A, I'll All give right. him a hot take. All right, Taylor. So uh, every episode we do something uh, where we ask uh, a hot take, as you probably already know, because you've listened to a few of these episodes yourself. So this is your turn to be in the hot seat. So Arun, why don't you take it away? Okay. So we I'm all so know. So nervous. Yeah, you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. <laughs> I don't think. We've all we we've all seen the news, and uh, we now have this thing called Twitter X. Oh boy, we have threads on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Over under who has more users in five years? Threads or t- or X slash Twitter slash. I'm still gonna go Twitter 
X. I, I just I can't with this X stuff, you guys. I'm going to call it Twitter until <laughs> the day I die. Um, I'm going to go Twitter. I think um, I, I think Meta did the right thing launching threads when they did. I think my gut says building that durable network effect is just going to be really tough. And maybe threads ends up better for your friend group, but for sort of notable people, journalists, sports professionals, you know, just, just politicians, that sort of thing. I have a hard time believing Twitter will be displaced in the next five years. Okay, there you go. You have it. Um, Save receipts. Arun, that was exactly the hot take I was planning to give as well. So I'm glad we mind melded there. I mean, how could it not be right at this point in time? Uh, so Taylor, thanks for thanks for sharing your opinion. I'm I'm of the I'm of the same mind. Yeah, Arun, what do you got? What do you think? Oh wow, uh, I think uh, I, I think yeah, you're, Arun, you're, you're, you're right. tweeting or you're xing a lot lately, um, <laughs> or whatever you're doing. I haven't actually I haven't xed in a while, um, but uh, I think that. I think that there's a user base at Twitter that will be hard to displace, but I do think that there's a an opportunity for somebody to come in with more moderation, more, yeah. um, just just like just just limit the downside of Twitter. Like we should have a should we have a truly free speech community out there? Sure. Should we have something that actually like has a few more protections and maybe is a little bit more sanitary? Yeah, I think there's a market for that too, and I think. Uh, I think uh, I think you know Twitter will be hard to completely remove, but I think that you know for inter-friend communication and inter-whatever communication, I think Threads Threads just seems more approachable. There you go. Hey everyone, Arun and I are extremely grateful to have you as a Technomics listener. As a reminder. The views expressed in the content of this podcast or anything linked in the newsletter, website, posts, or posted in social media or other platforms are that of our own and are not the views of any person, company, entity, or even any related affiliates. The content is not directed to any investors or even potential investors. It does not constitute an offer to sell or is a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. It may not be used or relied upon in evaluating the merits of any investment. Thank you.